It's the new year, which means that people can get their income taxes refunded from Cleveland if they have not worked in Cleveland. We'll be charging on on stories about how you do that today, because that's a lot of money for a lot of people. Not what we're talking about today, though, on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. How are you all? Great. It's sunny. I'm happy. Yeah, and it's winter. No doubt about that, right? So (laughs) at least for a couple of days, we'll have to see how things proceed. We do have weather to talk about lower down in the podcast because we are having some odd conditions. Let's begin. How much did the people collecting signatures to legalize marijuana miss the target by and how long do they have to regroup? Lisa, I was pretty surprised at the gigantic percentage of these signatures that were no good. And it started making me think, were all the people who were signing up stone just thinking that they, they don't have to be registered voters? What's going on here? Yeah, the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol, which is the group that is pushing for this initiated statute, they submitted over 206,000 signatures, which is well over the 132,887 that they need to uh, get this to the legislature and and then later on the ballot. Um, 74,000 of those signatures were rejected. So now the coalition has until the 14th, which is next Friday, to get 13,060 new signatures by that date. If they don't get those signatures, they have to start all over again. So, But the uh, CRMLA spokesman, Tom Heron, says he's not worried about it. He says there are lots of canvassers out there getting signatures, and so he's thinking that they'll be able to make that deadline handily. This proposed law to legalize recreational marijuana uh, has a few you know, uh, specifics to it. Uh, 21 and up, anyone who's 21 and up can buy or use marijuana. You can have six plants per person growing your own plant or 12 plants per residence. There would be a 10% tax, uh, you know, issued at the dispensaries on top of other local and state taxes. And this would also establish a division of cannabis control within the Department of Commerce to license and regulate it. So, and what an initiated statute is, basically it starts out in this form. They get out and they get petitions to put this in front of the legislature. If lawmakers do not pass a law after four months, then they have to get 132,000 more new signatures, as I understand it, to place it on the ballot. They hope to put it on the ballot this November. Yeah, but of course, they really don't want to put it on the ballot. They're trying to use the threat of it being on the ballot, which could affect midterm elections, to get the legislature to pass it. I'm just struck by the idea that that percentage of signatures were no good. You would think that the companies they pay to go out and collect signatures, that the first question you'd ask somebody is, are you a registered voter? And I would think most people know whether they're a registered voter. And then you wouldn't get their signature if they said no. But I, I, I'm wondering if they even ask that question, if they just run around and get signatures and, and don't even think about whether they're registered voters. That's just too high a percentage if you have any kind of filter. Yeah, it is pretty high, you know, 74,000 rejections, but they gathered, of course, you know, almost 70, almost that amount more than they needed. So I think a lot of petition drives do that, you know, knowing that some of them are probably going to fall off due to, you know, voter registration issues. So yeah, some, but, but that's, yeah, that's a lot. All right. We'll see if they get it because they, they don't have any leverage if they don't have the signatures. They can't get the legislature to pass this thing to avoid putting it on the ballot if they don't have the signatures to put it on there to begin with. 
We'll see if they meet that deadline. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Even by the recent standards of record-breaking warm temperatures, December in Cleveland stood out. Laura, what do the numbers tell us? And I have to say, they are surprising, even though we keep being surprised. Right. Last month's average high was the second highest since record keeping began at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport in 1938. Only December of 2015 saw warmer temperatures. That was an average high of 51 degrees. Then last month, we saw a high of about 48 degrees on average. And last year, if you remember that white Christmas we had with, you know, 10 inches of snow, we were at an average of about 39.3 degrees. So speaking of snow, you might have noticed we didn't have any in at, at all in December. It was actually colder and felt winter, more winter-like, I think, at Thanksgiving than it did at Christmas. We saw only 0.2 inches of snow throughout the month, all on December 28th. That was the smallest snow total at Hopkins since at least 1940. Yeah, I mean, the the fact that we had the least amount of snow in 80 years is what what struck me. I mean, it just, it has changed so much. I've lived in the same place for 25 years, so I have a long perspective on how things have changed. And right now I have a yard full of leaves because this tree that is behind my yard that always dumps its leaves late didn't dump it till Christmas week. And you know, up until a few years ago, that was Thanksgiving. And when I moved here, it was more like October. And it blows my mind that I'm going to be out raking leaves at some point in January. I completely agree with you. My mom always used to say that she would save the, you know, some leaves, piles of leaves in our yard for my brother's birthday at the end of October so that kids could play in them. And now it's like, you are lucky to get them picked up by December, by the end of, you know, beginning of December. And now uh, the leaf pickup in Rocky River, where I live, they're doing one last sweep of all of the tree lawns this week. So like they planned for the leaves to come down this late, but it is disappointing for anyone who really likes winter and wanted to be on the ski hill uh, while they were off work over Christmas. (laughs) So all three of you. (laughs) Hey, there are lots of us. I'm telling you, the ski hills were really busy last year and um, they are blowing snow. Susan Glazer did talk to uh, Vail Resorts that own Brandywine and Boston Mills as well as snow trails. They are trying to get open. So, you know, they need about 29 or 28 degrees at night or just in general to be able to make snow. So even though we don't have snow in the forecast, we could be skiing by the weekend uh, because of lower temperatures. Yeah, it's just, it's a striking number. Go ahead. I, I, I can't imagine a more stressful business than running Brandy, Brandywine in Boston Mills. <laughs> and you're a reporter. You're an editor. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I don't know how I would deal with that kind of stress. <laughs> Whether you're going to have like, to pave it and turn it to a roller hill because it's <laughs> no, just not going to be enough up, months. They have these indoor ski hills now in places like Dubai. And I'm like, are we going to have to turn into that? Like, is, is it going to be like an indoor pool, but just an indoor ski hill? <laughs> God. Well, it's chilly today, so we're getting a taste of it now, although not, not sub-zero. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's talk about COVID again. Two different public bodies surrendered to the recent surge Monday and told people to stay home. Who are they and how long will this last, Layla? Well, one is the Ohio State uh, legislative leaders who've told their employees to work from home for the next week in response to COVID numbers. House Speaker Bob Cup told his staff to not report to the office until Monday unless there's a business reason to do so. He's banning off-site employee meetings. His colleagues have also told their staffs they have the option of working 
from home. This is all very interesting because, of course, Republican state lawmakers generally have opposed calls from the legislative Democrats to impose more workplace safety measures throughout this past year. So things must be getting pretty bad out there for this change of hearts. But, uh, you know, meanwhile, the Cuyahoga County Common Police Court is postponing jury trials until the beginning of next month. And, and they're really the only court in the seven county region that's done this so far. The decision came after the judges spoke with defense attorneys and prosecutors and consulted with Metro Health. Other than the jury trials, the Justice Center is going to stay open so judges can keep having in-person and virtual hearings. But Administrative Judge Brennan Sheehan said this is this is a decision that's being made for the safety of jurors, really. You, you don't know which jurors are vaccinated or not. And, and if you lose a few jurors to COVID along the way of a trial, you have to start over and that can be expensive. So it's just better for everyone to hit pause for a few weeks and cross our fingers and hope the surge uh, passes as, as they predict. Yeah, I mean, forcing people to come down to the courthouse who might be taking every other precaution to avoid getting right. the coronavirus would be unfair. What's interesting is in the beginning of the pandemic, when they closed the courts for months and did this, they, they claimed there would be a big, long delay in, in catching up, but we really never faced a crisis. They generally got the work done. Mm-hmm. So I don't think this has all that big an effect. Um, we haven't seen it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I don't recall there being stories of these enormous, you know, backlogs that they couldn't recover from. So I think you're right, but we're going to explore that further, aren't we? Yeah. And more and more people are getting it. I mean, Laura Johnston, you said you just saw a news break that Rob Portman has been diagnosed with COVID. Yep. I did see that and we're working on the story. And I I just, I do think that even the people that are taking all the precautions and testing all the time, you can't avoid this. Well, and he was a brave soul at the beginning of the pandemic. He did the trial. He was one of the guinea pigs. And a Republican who's told people to go get vaccinated. So you gotta respect him for that. But lots of people who have been vaccinated and got the booster are getting it. I, I did a column a few weeks back asking for people's experience, and then we got hundreds and hundreds of responses. Well, people keep sending me their experiences. I'm getting them even today because so many people who have the vaccination and the booster get it, but they're not getting, for the large part, seriously sick. So I'm sure we will hear more people that get it as well. It's today in Ohio. How might the crippling supply chain issues of parts and raw materials during the pandemic offer some hope for Ohio manufacturing in 2022? Reporter Sean McDonnell asked a bunch of experts, Laura, what did they tell him? Well, he he talked about a whole bunch of things looking at the trends for 2022 and that both, and he had a really clever headline I just want to point out. It's been 22 months. So what are we going to do for, for 2022? But uh, both parts and raw materials could still run short and this coming year because there'll still be supply chain issues. We're still waiting on all those computer chips for cars and a host of other things. And shortage in the labor market could make it harder for even the things that are made to get to us. Things like truck drivers and obviously the ports are still a problem. But the good news is for Ohio is they're, they're because of all of that, that companies are trying to diversify their manufacturing. So they're not just relying on a couple of plants overseas. They want to be able to buy their goods from a lot of different places and and having the factories and the facilities in in the United States makes it a whole lot easier to get them places. So in the future we could see more manufacturing coming back to Ohio and because of remote remote work which is another trend that's going to keep continuing people may end up moving here to Cleveland because they don't have to live on the coast and it, we have a a good quality of life and a lower cost of living. Yeah, you know, what was interesting is we have as much of our staff 
as possible take off in the holidays. So everybody wants it and we try to accommodate because very little news happens. But to get that done, we ask everybody to put together a couple of enterprise stories. And what never fails to happen is the last two weeks of the year, we have all these fascinating stories that reporters come up with. And this was very much in that vein. It was a great piece he put together and then got to take couple days off so yeah he talked to a whole bunch of experts about an array of things in the business world talked about hybrid work and how employees really want freedom and flexibility and they have a lot of power right now so you know you mentioned about the income tax at the top of the podcast you know people aren't they can live where they want to live they don't have to spend their time commuting and any one company that's going to try to demand that they be in one place at one time i think is going to have a tougher tougher time of it um and also, I, I didn't know this statistic, 29 companies, 8,800 jobs have been lured from the coast to Ohio since 2019. So obviously, that's not all pandemic, but I mean, that's a decent number. Okay. It's today in Ohio. With Justin Bibb taking over as Cleveland mayor and many of Frank Jackson's administrators retiring, who can we count on to make sure the roads get plowed, the trash gets picked up, and the water keeps coming through the faucet? Layla, it's a big moment when you have this kind of a transition. What's what's happening at City Hall? Who's making sure if we do get snow ever that it won't remain on the roads? Welp, <laughs> it seems we're going to have to count on Frank Jackson's people a little while longer. Uh, Courtney Astolfi reported on Monday that when Bibb swore in his new cabinet picks, he also swore in more than a dozen members of Jackson's administration who have agreed to stay on for the next couple months or so to make sure basic city services are being delivered while Bibb's folks get their feet under them at City Hall. So that list includes Carrie Howard overseeing public safety and Michael Cox overseeing public works. So at least police will be deployed, streets will be plowed, trash will be picked up, if nothing else. It also appears that Bibb is going to retain airport director Robert Kennedy and, and not in an interim capacity, but he seems to be there for at least the the you know foreseeable future. Uh, one name on the list that rose our eyebrows yesterday is interim director of the Office of Quality Control and Performance Management, Sabre Pierce Scott. You know, her employment at City Hall has always been kind of mystifying, given her history. She she was that a... kind of mystifying, completely <laughs> mystifying. She was corrupt. I know. Corrupt I as know. a city councilwoman. And Frank Jackson gave her a job. That's it right. Made no sense whatsoever. It, she had resigned abruptly from her seat in 2009 amid the whole you know county corruption probe. And that she said at the time it was for personal reasons. But then she pleaded guilty to accepting a bribe from a contractor. Uh, she was sentenced yeah, to she three was years shaking. of probation. She was, wait, wait, uh, wait. She was using her position to shake down a contractor. It was, it's like the worst kind of sin a public official can commit. It boggled our minds that Frank Jackson brought her back, and now Justin Bibb is keeping her. I know. What is that guy thinking? I don't know. You know, she, yeah, she landed this cushy job working for Jackson, and now Bibb is keeping her around at least for a little while. I mean, this is it's just amusing to me, given how important the theme of change was to Bibb's campaign. And of course, it's a transition. It'll take time to get the right ple- people in place. But, you know, I, th- it's just it, it was kind of astounding to see that she that was, she made that it through was, that crucible. <laughs> she made well, it through that. it's just that was an easy one. He should have not done that. Yeah. I mean, I, I that maybe he wasn't aware, but I find that even how, more shocking. How? The Kennedy decision's a good decision. We've had a long history of difficulty in finding good airport chiefs and he's largely seems to have known what he's doing and has been a good 
force out yeah, there. I'd agree. Cox is the the one, although I think he's only staying for a couple of months. He's the guy that has made sure the roads get plowed. Layla, I think you wrote the story six or seven years ago when Jackson finally delivered his his snow plan hmm. to, to no longer have problems with how we get the roads plowed. And since then, we largely have had a very good system. And we know that mayors can completely lose the 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 support of the public if they screw that up that's so, true so you know bib relying on cox to keep that going that's a yeah it, smart ha- it has been quite a few years actually that we you, know, you remember it used to be a perennial story it was like oh snow's coming get ready for the big how did cleveland fumble snow plowing after the first do you, big do you snow? remember the one night that was like the gridlock like yeah. that no i know just literally parked in downtown for hours but he fixed it and right. it's worked well ever since. It's just you got to make sure somebody knows how it worked well to keep it going. And the other name that I really took some some joy in seeing is Carrie Howard. Jackson did not do well with public safety directors, as we've often discussed in, in, in Mike McGrath, the former chief. He really had a guy that was a disaster on discipline. Carrie Howard has come in and held officers accountable very fairly. It would be wonderful if Justin Bibb could could keep him on because it's the first bright light we've seen in that spot in a long time. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. What and and then what about what are you what are you thinking of the new names that he has brought in? Are you getting a sense that he's he is making the change he talked about? I mean, we know who the law director is because he's worked for the county in a pretty prominent role, solid solid guy, good reputation. But he he broke the chief of staff position into two positions and brought in two relatively unknown people to be in those. Positions. Yeah, I know. And and that we have been talking about that behind the scenes. You know what? Uh, who is he going to bring on that knows how City Hall works? You know, that's been kind of the discussion we've been having every day for the past couple of weeks here is we're waiting to see that name uh, of somebody who has some institutional knowledge of the place and. I don't know. Who is it going to be? It's got, they got to pick well, something. They can't have all these new faces who don't know the institution. Well, when I brought this up, you kind of got my face and said, look, if you're going to make change, you make wholesale change. And I said, OK, well, think about it this way. What if I and every one of the editors left the newsroom overnight and a new group came in? How would that go? <laughs> and, you know, you'd lose all your institutional knowledge. You'd lose all of the the red flags. And so, yeah, you want change, but you do want somebody who understands how things work. I keep thinking because Zach Reed was such a big supporter of his and Reed spent years in city hall as a council person that he'll end up being part of this administration. And he does have the institutional knowledge. I I mean, yeah, I, I agree. He does have the institutional knowledge, but I think Uh, It really depends on what kind of role he would be serving in, because I'm not sure that he has, um, you know, the executive capabilities for, you know, a high, high, high level position that, you know, we've talked about that, too. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a high level position. It just has to be somebody who knows where the keys to the to the different desks are. Right. It's like, (laughs) you know, I mean, you got to know where the garbage trucks are parked if you're going to send them out to go and pick up garbage. It's just the basic kind of stuff. And in the finance department, you know, Sharon Dumas has left. Uh, She did have a pretty good bench there, but that was one of the strengths of the previous administration is keeping that budget balanced. And he has until February 1st, right, to turn in his budget 
to counsel. That's right. And and I'm looking at the names of everyone he's appointed. Do we know who's in charge of that right now? No. No. I don't. And he's and the clock is ticking because he owes he has to Good deliver grief. that February first. Oh man! All right. Good luck, Mayor. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to today in Ohio. Is the Ohio Department of Education helping Lorraine, East Cleveland, and Youngstown schools get free of state control to help those districts, or is it to remove the responsibility of overseeing them from the state? Lisa, what's going on here? Well, it's not really clear which side of the fence they're landing on there, but uh, they're, they did okay, the Department of Education okayed the improvement plan submitted by these three schools, um, which are Lorraine, East Cleveland, and Youngstown, and these improvement plans will start to take place July 1st of this year. Um, if the majority of these benchmarks are met for three years, then these schools will be released from state control. The, right now, because of House Bill 70, they're under control control of an academic distress commission that appointed CEOs to oversee these three schools that kind of superseded the superintendent role. Now, if they don't meet their benchmarks in three years, they have up to two one-year extensions if they don't meet them. So it looks like the state will still have their hand in this, at least for the next three years, unless these schools can get themselves out of state control. But unfortunately, the state control, because it started with Youngstown in 2016, Lorraine was next in 2017, and then East Cleveland in 2018. But we've seen through reporting, state control has not improved things. I mean, teachers and educators are still leaving. Graduation rates are down, you know, are are not improving. Grades aren't improving. Students are leaving these districts. So, yeah, it's it's hard to say whether they just want to be shut of this or whether, you know, they're going to see this through to the end. Well, the idea of state control, when people hear that, they think the state really is in charge and the state is controlling the money and maybe bringing some money in because clearly these are three districts that are broke and money makes a difference in education. But it never was that. It was kind of a phony state control that left the districts in limbo. They're not able to make their decisions, but but the state is not providing the financial help to to make a difference. So it's kind of a whole... The whole thing is a failed idea, the idea of state control. And it's interesting, though, that the two of the the uh, uh, schools, East Cleveland and Lorraine, are going to keep their CEOs on, you know. So um, CEO Jeff Graham is going to stay in Lorraine. East Cleveland is keeping Dr. Henry Pettigrew, which kind of interesting because when these CEOs first came in, you know, they superseded the superintendent. A lot of people were upset about it. You know, they say, oh, you know, we're losing local control of our school districts. So it's interesting that two out of the three schools are saying, hey, we're going to keep the guys. Although Pettigrew is great. I mean, he, they'd be crazy to, to not try to keep him. He's a, he's a very expansive thinker. And if he ever got the financial means necessary to really make a difference in that school, I think he could be a, a real trendsetter for urban education. So I hope he sticks around. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the pilot program Shaker Heights is using to help police deal with some volatile situations involving mental health or addiction issues? Layla, this is part of, the, I don't want to use the words, but I'm going to the defund the yeah. police idea. I was trying not to was, use those words either, but go ahead. Right, it was, It's not about taking away money from the police. It's right. about actually changing your approach to policing That's in right. some ways. 
and Shaker Heights is doing something. That's right, right, right. Um, it, it, Shaker Heights will be launching this pilot program in partnership with Metro Health and Recovery Resources, which is an agency that's part of Metro Health and, and helps people with mental illness, alcoholism, drug and other addictions. They're going to they're going to embed licensed social workers in the city's police and fire departments, and the social workers are going to ride along a 911 calls to offer social services and follow-up care to residents who are experiencing these mental health crises. Officers will also receive crisis intervention training as a companion to this program. And the goal is to reduce the number of people with behavioral health issues in the jail, in courts, hospital emergency departments, because about 15% of the Shaker Police Department's 37,000 calls in 2019 were related to mental health. And officials expect that once they crunch the stats for 2020, that that number is going to be even higher because of the increased levels of stress and depression that, that the pandemic brought into everybody's life. So, I mean, this pilot project, along with the newly opened Diversion Center, are just enormous steps in the right direction. Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, they all have programs like this. It would be wonderful to see this duplicated across our region. And, you know, let's face it, we've seen too many people across the nation die in police custody when they're experiencing a mental health emergency. Uh, Tanisha Anderson in Cleveland was an example for us. So um, this is just, to me, so uh, progressive and and, uh, such a positive change. This is one of those issues, though, that when it came up before we could have a real discussion about it, it became polarized. It became this defund the police thing. This is this is the progressives just trying to get rid of law and order. And 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 so it it, it kind of derailed the kind the conversation about how better to deal with people having anxiety issues when police arrive. Many times that's what what is at issue here. It's somebody having some kind of mental break and nobody can deal with that better than a, a social worker who understands what's driving it. They're educated in it. They've dealt with it a lot. How do we get back to having that conversation? Because because you bring it up and it's immediately you just want to take money away from the police. Right. Defund the police. I don't know where that phrasing came from, but it's such an unfortunate choice. I wish that that had never been the rallying cry that that, you know, first, um, you know, was was adopted because that's not what this is at all. This is, like you said, a complete rethinking of how police are deployed, how they serve the community, and how to couple resources in a way that, that you know, reaches people in their time of need. So I wish that we could abandon that, for, that phrase, but even if, you know, it, it will never be abandoned by those who are so pro-police and, and uh, you know, want to just you know, carry it forward as, as, you know, their own rallying cry against this sort of approach. But the idea that a mental health professional would go instead of the police officer is what's preposterous. You need them both because it is volatile. It is dangerous. And so you need police there for the safety issue, but you need the mental health professional to reduce the tension and anxiety. It was always an augmentation, not a taking right, away. Right, right. We'll have to pay a lot of attention and, to Shaker and try and, and spread also, the word. interestingly, in this Shaker pilot, they won't ever send the social worker into an environment before it's been de-escalated, which I do wonder how that plays out, because sometimes the de-escalation is the part where, uh, you know, there are missteps that could harm the person at the heart of it, right? So uh, if you're going to hold back on the social services uh, deployment in that moment, 
what, you know, what are then police are kind Although, of left to their own. No, because my bet is they go in tandem. And so they talk to each other about it. They're, they're going to have a call. They're going to go to the call together. There'll be True. some communication. And, you know, you can't program this. Every situation is different in some way. But if you have law enforcement professional, mental health professional working together in good faith, then how can that not be a better approach mm-hmm. than just going in with the, the guns? And so I, my, my bet is if, if everybody participates in good faith, we could see a real difference in, in it. Well, look, we're going to need to pay close attention to it because this is a very enlightened view. It is. Credit to Shaker Heights for taking it. It's today in Ohio. Now that Lake and Trumbull counties proved in court that pharmacy chains helped cause the deadly opioid crisis, what's the next step for those counties in getting paid for all the damages the pharmacies caused? Laura, what's next? Well, there's a jury trial to determine just how much these companies should have to pay. So a federal jury had found that CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart created a public nuisance in the counties because the chains failed to stem the oversupply of the prescription opioids in their stores. This was the first verdict in the nation involving the roles of pharmacies in the opioid epidemic. And starting on May 9th, U.S. District Judge Dan Polster will preside over this two-week hearing to determine how much the chains must pay. The county's attorneys say it's going to cost more than a billion dollars in each county to remedy the effects of the crisis, that this would go for greatly expanded treatment programs, social services, and law enforcement, as well as long-term inpatient treatment that they really don't have. So they're going to present evidence that shows just how deep this crisis has seeped into the Northeast Ohio communities, basically showing how it's affected families and, and education and everything, all of the, the trickle-down effects. And but there'll probably there's probably going to be some appeals from the pharmacies because of, of course, they're going to appeal this. Right. Although this is where a smart person might say, "Okay, we lost. Let's settle this instead of letting a jury come back and pick the price. I mean, they lost. They, They put all the evidence before a jury. The question was legitimate. They lost. The next step is for a jury to pick the amount. I I don't know. I would think the pharmacies would sit back and say, let's cut our losses. Let's make a deal. Let's avoid the trial. I I thought they had a pretty good case with the jury, but obviously not. The jury slammed them. And to go back to court and and try and persuade a jury that they shouldn't get these damages, I I mean, just it's going to be dollar signs. I, I would agree with that. And some of the other pharmacies did end up settling because, you know, obviously they have more control over that. One of the things that John Coniglia wrote about is that lawyers for the chains want to contend that the public nuisance laws were not meant for anything as large or complicated as an opioid epidemic. And so this this term of public nuisance wouldn't apply. But these numbers I just, I was staggered by. More than 80 million opioid pills poured into Trumbull County from 2006 through 2012 and 60 million in Lake County. During this time, the population of each county was less than 250,000. I mean, that is just crazy. This is folly. I mean, this is one where, okay, go to trial and just start adding zeros after after the big numbers. It's, uh, we'll, we'll have to see how that trial goes. We'll be covering it. It's today in Ohio. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Wednesday with another discussion of the news.